This is a show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve him and their neighbor, for whom the words of the creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is the show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. Well, every time that Jesus called one of the apostles to follow him, it required them leaving something behind, a previous attitude, a previous belief, a previous practice. For, uh, for Matthew, he left behind his, his tax collector booth, his whole, not only his job, because that certainly was part of it, but he also left behind his entire way of interacting with other people, right? He had a, a position that came with it some way that you viewed a person. As a tax collector for the Roman government, um, you made your money, as the scholars say, uh, by putting a little bit extra on the top for your commission, for your cut. And so every time a person approaches you, you begin to judge them based on what they do, based on how they look, based on how much extra can I put on the top of this transaction so that I can make my my bills and and can make the money that I need to make to make to be able to live. So you are living basically um, on how well you judge other people. That was his job as a tax collector, and he had to let that go. Yeah, Peter, Peter, of course, Peter and and, and Andrew and, and James and John, they had to give up the fishing nets. They had to give up their livelihood. Uh, that is a, that's a certain thing, certainly. But Matthew specifically had to give up uh, the the whole way of of life, not just the job, not just what he did in the morning, but the whole um, lens through which he viewed the world. Jesus said, no, 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 come this way. Come follow me. We're not going to look at people as a means to an end. We're not going to uh, determine the, their value based on mere appearance or uh, a gut feeling. Rather, we are going to view all people, and we, we get this revealed to us more fully as the scripture moves on. Uh, certainly, Matthew didn't understand this fully at the beginning, but we're going to judge all people based on the merits of Christ. We're going to judge all people as brothers, as sisters. We are one family. Even, even though we have very specifically one family as we've been adopted into, uh, into Christ, we're the, the family of God. Even beyond that, there is a family connection just in the human family. And so when Jesus calls Matthew to follow him, he's calling him not only, hey, I have some things I want you to do. I have some, some things that I want, uh, places I want you to go, uh, and some new realities to walk in. I want you, Jesus calls him out, I want you to fundamentally interact with everyone around you differently than you have been. Not as, as someone to meet your own needs, but as family. Not as, uh, as basically looking at their worth or the, how much investment you are willing to put in them based on their appearance or their wealth or their anything else. No, no, no. I want you to view, and we get this in Matthew 25, I want you to view all of them 
as if they were me. Now, the reason that we get that in Matthew 25 and not at the beginning when Jesus calls Matthew is because Matthew doesn't know Jesus yet. He doesn't fully know how he's going to respond to Jesus. It's only after a three-year stint following Jesus and falling in love with the divine presence, falling absolutely in love, saying, I will do anything to the point of even going to my death for the sake of Christ. It's after we get to that point in the relationship that Jesus says, whatever you do to the least of these, you've done to me, right? Because now we have a vested interest in doing good to Jesus. And so he says, look everywhere else, look at all these other people that you used to judge in a certain way, and now I want you to treat them like you would treat me. Now, here's the thing in the difficulty in that. And of course, we all know and experience the difficulty in that just inherently. But the difficulty in that is that people are not Jesus in the sense of they are not perfect and their imperfections bump up against our imperfections and their way of thinking bumps up against our way of thinking. And gosh, don't we go at it. You just have to go to social media to look at that. Uh, well, this uh, this last week, um, Pope Francis released his latest encyclical, Fratelli Tutti, and I've not had the chance to read the whole thing, but the parts that are of it that I have read are are deeply good. And I know that there's some media out there that is uh, that's challenging uh, the 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 encyclical and saying it's confusing or saying that it changes things. Listen, I've read those parts; it doesn't it doesn't change things. Um, and it is just truly a worthwhile read. But I'm going to read a little bit of it to you now because it, it affects our discussion today. So this is number 244, way towards the end uh, of Fratelli Tutti by Pope Francis. When conflicts are not resolved, but kept hidden or buried in the past, silence can lead to complicity in grave misdeeds and sins. Authentic reconciliation does not flee from conflict, but is achieved in conflict, resolving it through dialogue and open, honest, and patient negotiation. Conflict between different groups, if it abstains from enmities and mutual hatred, gradually changes into an honest discussion of differences founded on a a desire for justice. On numerous occasions, I have spoken of a principle indispensable to the building of friendship and society, namely that unity is greater than conflict. This is not to opt for a kind of syncretism or for the absorption of one into the other, but rather for a resolution which takes place on a higher plane and preserves what is valid and useful on both sides. All of us know that when we as individuals and communities learn to look beyond ourselves and our particular interests, then understanding and mutual commitment bear fruit in a setting where conflicts, tensions, and even groups once considered inimical can attain a multifaceted unity, which gives rise to new life. That comes from Pope Francis' new encyclical, Fratelli Tutti. It's number 244. The whole thing is great. Please go read it. Um, This is important for us because we, by by virtue of our baptism, share a a common unity that, that we have to strive for, it's already there. We are unified in Christ. There is only one body, but we have to recognize that. We have to say, oh, I am a member of you. I belong to you. I am. We are part of the same body of Christ. And in that, and because of that, I'm going to, like Matthew, 
put aside the, my way of interacting with the world and my way of viewing people and judging people, and I'm going to approach this differently. So in an effort to, to follow that prescription of Pope Francis and, and the way to handle conflict, today we're going to have a conversation with Damon Owens about um, structural sin, structures of injustice. Uh, often this is expressed through systemic racism. And we're going to talk about this because it is a conflict in our culture that we need to address with open and honest communication. Uh, And we're going to see where that leads. Damon is the executive director of Joyful Ever After, a marriage and family ministry centered on St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body. You may know him. He used to be the director of the Theology of the Body Institute. So this is something he knows a little bit about. In the Diocese of Tulsa, we used to use the um, the Joy-Filled Marriage, marriage Preparation Seminars. And of course, Damon was on the videos for those. So uh, I came to know you through that. Ah, uh, Yes. Uh, and so you should be a fairly familiar face uh, to everyone listening. Wait, wait a second. I guess it doesn't work that way. Face for radio, but we'll see what happens. <laughs> so recently, you have uh, have begun talking a little bit about um, your experience as as an African American man uh, and how you experience race here in America, and that's a conversation. Um, that that tends to get people very quickly retreating into their narratives. Yes. And as I look at this, um, you and I have both been involved in marriage ministry. It reminds mm-hmm. me. I'm just I'm watching the whole disagreement play out, and I'm I'm hearing all of the conversations that we have with young, doe-eyed, engaged couples about <laughs> how to handle conflict. And then I watch the way that we, as Catholics. Uh, handle conflict that we largely see as political conflict. And Mm -hmm. and I'm seeing some patterns here, Damon, uh, that remind me of these conversations we have with young couples about family of origin, about the baggage we bring with us into an argument. And I'm watching it play out on a national scale with the human family we have here in America. So talk to me a little bit from that angle of how to approach an argument, a disagreement mm-hmm. um, in a way that is productive and, and can actually bring about some, some reconciliation, some conclusion. Wow. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. And, and I've really been looking forward to talking with you about this because I know, you know, we share not just, you know, our Catholic faith, our, our, our love with Jesus Christ, but, you know, as you said, marriage preparation experience in our own marriages and, and getting a, you know, a taste of other people's marriages. So we're seeing exactly what, your this first question is um, is is, uh, is is teasing out, and that is when human beings gather. You know, we're called to communion. Let's start with the anthropology, right? We're made for communion. That's the way God revealed Himself to us, and us made in His image and likeness. That's why He made us male and female. It's the icon of every friendship, of of both the origin, the history, and the destiny of the human person. So let's begin up there. Let's begin up there and say. If that's the universal truth, let's call it the cosmos. If that's the cosmological truth of, of all of creation, Dr. Peter Kreef talks about that. Um, then, you know, what? how does it play out in the particulars? The particular of a new beloved doe-eyed couple, the particulars of, you know, of people of different race, ethnicity, language, different, uh, you know, ideologies, creed. How does it play out in marriage? How does it play out in a neighborhood, in a parish? 
And now, as you said, how does this play out in really conflict issues like race, racism, in uh, sexism, and all these isms that seem to to, to have conflict? Um, it plays out most predominantly there, and I think that's that's the key message I want to share: is that for too long we've allowed these global issues, meaning they're they around the world, to remain in this safe area of whether politic or in nation nationality or in sort of this other. And I'm guilty as anybody else. I'm, I'm trying to do an analysis of, you know, what's this broken human condition and how do we deal with conflict? And in the same way that you and I have worked with couples for over these years and helping them to resolve their particular conflict, family of origin, temperament, personality, um, uh, habits, uh, you know, the way that sin manifests in that selfishness, that particular also has a parallel and an, an analog uh, in big, difficult conversations like race. Mm-hmm. My appeal has been, uh, what we're doing right now, and that is let's begin with what we share and what we know. And it turns out that our Catholic faith, our, as Christians, biblical Christian faith, Catholic in particular, allows us uh, a trust, a dialogue, an ability to p- press through what the rest of the world simply cannot do because of that division. And I want to press in on that. I want to cash all of that in as a brother and a sister. Literally, we share the same Father in heaven that in our differences, all the difference in creation are meant to be for complementarity. Differences aren't meant for division. Mm-hmm. And if we can hold on to that and realize that you and I, T.O., we may, we may have very different politics, maybe. We may have very different worldviews, temperaments, personalities. We might even like each other. I don't suspect that. But, you know, we might have, but there's a bigger and a deeper obligation that says, I still will your good. Mm-hmm. And the goodest good that I can will you is your sanctification. Literally, you're becoming Christ. To yeah. be just not a toe in Christ, but to be Christ in the world. And 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 if we can keep that first, then we can handle all kind of division, anger. We can handle all kind of conflict and still get a beer. I mean, we could still hang out. Well, and let so me, that's the premise. Let me push on this a little bit more because something that I have found, mm. both in myself in conflict and in watching others in conflict. Yes. When I find myself the most resistant and the mm. angriest about something mm. is is the point at which there is something I don't really want to address. Yeah. When yeah. when there is um, when there's conflict and I can sit down and I can be open. We earlier in the show we heard this from Pope Francis about how to handle conflict. When I can mm. sit down and have an honest conversation and open myself in humility to the possibility that I might just maybe not have the full complete picture. Yeah. Um, then then something can be accomplished. It's when I harden my heart. It's when I get to a place where I say, I, I already have the answer to this. I will not listen to you. That, yeah. that really, that's a signal and a sign that I, I most need to change something. I most need to hear something because I am intransigent and unwilling to even look at that dark place that's causing the anger in me. Yeah, and listen, listeners here, we are not, I agree with you 100%. And, we were able to talk that way because of our own marriages and having to deal with it with our own, with our, with our children and a marriage again, work working in other and seeing it over and over and over again, that that intransigence is, is precisely a, a point of, of, um, of pressing in, not of running away because on the other side of that, on the other side of that, the pain of entering into something that we don't want to, that inflames us in a heartbeat with an outrage is a real healing that if you haven't experienced the joy of reconciling yourself to yourself, 
of, of recognizing your weaknesses and your strengths, your skills and your, your you know, lack thereof. If you, don't, if you haven't gone to the other side, then all you see is the conflict. All you think is that this conflict means I'm less than. Mm-hmm. That somehow I'm, I'm, my identity is wrong as opposed to my idea being wrong. And I know this firsthand. This is part of the healing in my own heart, my own life, you know, from a certain perfectionism, from a certain people-pleasing mode. I mean, these are sort of the things that even secular science, psychology has just pressed in on. So we're not just talking religious concepts here. We're talking about the human person. So I agree with you, TL. I think that gives us sort of a certain, not just advantage, but a responsibility, a duty to be able to bring that virtue, that, that human habit, that goodness to goodness, bring that virtue to bear on the most difficult topics, including things like race. So Damon, I'm, I'm thinking about, um, the, again, this idea of talking in marriage and conflict in marriage, because we are one family. And while, while the affection and the love that we have for one another, uh, in the human family is going to be different than we have for our spouse. There is still this, this command and this obligation to love one another and bear one another's burdens. I think of that point in marriage where, I cannot see my spouse's perspective in an argument. Um, There's a, there's a a, a musician um, by the name of Dave Wilcox. And and one of his stories as he's leading into the song, uh, he's talking about seeing from your spouse's point of view. And he says, um, I can, I, I see that you believe it, but, but how, right? And we, we get that place. Um, in our in our discussions and our arguments, I, I see that you believe this, but but how I, I just do not understand how you can believe this. It's in those places where we where we show the true push of love to will the good of the other, to engage in the conversation anyway, even though I don't understand it. I'm going to open myself up more and say help me understand it. I'm not going to relegate you over to the corner and push you away and say, we're not going to have this conversation again. Um, This love engages and embraces the discomfort because you will the good of that person and you will the good of that relationship. If you could press in on that because you're, oh, this is gorgeous. This is beautiful. This is gorgeous. So we do that in marriage precisely because of the particular type of love that we pledged at the altar. So we lean on that sacramental bond, that sacramental promise, that power of God, the grace that flows through it to say, you know, I do this because I will your good. I promised it. And the will that I good, the good that I willed for you is your salvation is helping you get to heaven. That's real. And many times in marriage, we have to name that sacramental grace and say, Lord, <laughs> help me through this sac. Give me, give me your grace to do this because I don't feel like it yeah. because this makes me outraged because this, I know I'm right. And it's, it's infuriating to hear about feelings and about, you know, uh, you know these things that, that don't match up to facts and statistics. It's infuriating, Lord, but I lean on yours because I promise this. The analog to that, the connection to that is our baptism mm-hmm. and more importantly, our confirmation. And what baptism brought us into relationship with God the Father, bringing us through Christ, the ability is adopted, but real, real. Adopted and real, forget that, but adopted and real mm-hmm. sons and daughters of God, the father, that ordering and then equipping to the Holy Spirit with confirmation. This is real. This ability to, to, to reconcile and be in communion with the father carries with it an obligation that like the marriage vow, we need to lean on in situations where we're being trapped, we're being uh, uh, challenged. Mm-hmm. We are being feeling we're being attacked when we need to feel to defend ourselves. 
when someone tells us something about how we feel, how they feel or what they're experiencing, and we throw back facts and statistics, mm-hmm. that, that's, that's, as, that's as toxic in, in the culture and friendship and in the God, family of God as it is in marriage. Yeah. And this is one of the things I've had to learn is that when my wife talks about how she feels, that's, that's when I need to be most attentive because my engineering brain, my male brain immediately goes to, well, that's not what happened. And let's fix your perspective. And right? let's fix it because that doesn't align with facts and statistics and what I know actually was said. What I said was <laughs> as productive as improductive as that is in marriage, every, every married man should be laughing right now because you know, that's not what happened. You try that in the first couple of years of marriage and you see the disaster, mm-hmm. right? You spend in because it's not about the facts. It's about your wife. Yeah. And the fact that she's experiencing something, your husband is experiencing something. And as baffling as that is to you and how contrary it is to your worldview, you care so much about them. You will so much of their good that you're willing to set aside all of your weapons of defense, Damon, and to listen and enter into Melanie. And that is that is why marriage is an icon of salvation. It's the mm-hmm. sign of salvation because it's the sign of how we're meant to, to uh enter into real communion with one another in preparation for heaven, which is the perfect communion for God. If we can bring that salvation worldview, that sacramental worldview on big cultural questions, a couple things are going to happen. First, we're going to enter into conversations like you and I are having so frequently Mm -hmm. that the difficulty that is so hard when we don't do it seems to vaporize. It's still hard, but there's an ease with every virtue right? As we start to build it, we can enter a conversation with people yelling at us and they're hurt and they're angry and they're outraged. You know, our first instinct is not going to be, well, the instinct might be, but our first move is not going to be to get our, our shields and our, and our weapons and defend ourselves about this and that and prove how wrong we're going to look at them and be like, man, you're really hurt. And, and yeah. you know, the insults and the things that are hurting me right now, I, Lord, I offer them up to you because my sister right here is hurting. I don't understand it. I don't get it. I don't even know that it's true but I believe her and I want to help her with this. That's a uniquely Christian approach that is missing in all the public conversations precisely because Christians are missing in all of these public conversations. Well, and, and many times we, we find ourselves as Christians, maybe even part of these conversations, but we bring our, uh, our social identity or our politic or something else into it. And we don't bring our Christianity into it. Guilty. Guilty. Uh, so, we bring it second. We bring it after. Right. <laughs> it's it's the, the name, name of Jesus. You're wrong. It's the name. <laughs> it's the name tag on the shirt. You know, uh, the the popes and our bishops and and our our priests and the the encyclicals that have come out uh, specifically this last one. They're in, oh, they're talking yeah. to us about the need to engage in these conversations because mm-hmm. going all the way back to what Saint Paul said, we are members of one another, and yeah. I I recall this. Um, I was in the Methodist church growing up and there was even in the United Methodist church, a great sense of disunity because of disagreement. And so I, I had this perspective of always checking someone's credentials and seeing what kind they were. And should I listen to you? And shortly, which tribe are you from? (laughs) Shortly after I became Catholic, um, that whole thing was flipped on its head. And I had this profound experience of the communion of the saints that I'd never experienced before. Mm. And it, mm. and it was that there was a, a village in Nigeria that a number of Christians were martyred just mm. shortly after I came into the church in 2011. Mm. And I remember deeply feeling, 
even though I've never been to Nigeria, I don't know these people, I don't know their culture, uh, mm. but someone walked into this Catholic church and martyred um, a whole parish full of Nigerians. Mm. Mm. And I deeply felt, these are my people. Mm. These are people who share my Catholicism. This is this is my family, even though mm. I am the pastiest white guy you've ever seen. Doesn't matter. This is my family. Your family. And so if I can have my family yeah. uh, of, of Africans in Nigeria who were martyred for the faith, then how is it that I have trouble here in the United States with someone of a different race whose experience is different than my own? Yeah. I should be able to look at them by virtue of our baptism and have a conversation and say, let me enter into your experience and let us share our love for Christ. Let us share in our baptism and let us share in this communion of saints. Oh, that's so beautiful. And I mean that. I mean, the beauty in that and what the Lord gave you and that grace of that encounter. And just like all those encounters with the Lord, right? They're, they're sadly, they're fleeting on the side of heaven, but they're, they're the things we remember and they become sort of a North Star for us to say, well, why can't it always be like this? Lord, we come down from the mountain. Can I, can I set up a booth here, Lord? And, <laughs> and just, you know, just abide in here. But God gave you that grace as part of your conversion, in my opinion, because that is a, a gift that you are meant to sow and the way you're mm-hmm. sowing it right now. And for ears to ear, hear and eyes to see, the lesson there is not the rebuke. Right. The lesson is the other side of the rebuke where that vision allows, is calling you in the moments you can't see, you know, uh, 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 and I'm not putting this on you, but, you know, the, the stereotypical, <laughs> the, big, the big black man coming across, you know, walking towards you in the street and you kind of doing a double take like, okay, we have a dangerous criminal or, you know, the poor person, the hand did the, the, with the, the homeless person come up to the car asking for money mm-hmm. and you're thinking, oh, geez, here we go, here we go, a guy's got to hurt me, I don't have any money, I feel like, but all of those angst that every one of us deals with, uh, God gave you a vision that expanded the horizon. Well, and, and that's why I love Pope Francis talking about fraternity. Let's expand. Let's even expand that because that that mm-hmm. person walking towards me on the street, uh, that the 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 homeless person asking for money, all of these people, they're not my brother, they're not mm-hmm. my sister, they're Christ Himself. Oh, in Matthew oh. twenty five, He says, "Whatever you do to the least mm-hmm. of these, my brethren, we ought to be able, as Mother Teresa said, to find Jesus even in His most distressed in disguise." That, that the person who is approaching us, and this is not something that, I, that any of us do perfectly. I certainly don't no. do it perfectly, but it's something that I have to strive to, to put on those glasses and say, this person walking towards me, if this were Christ, how would I respond? Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and 100%, and let me be Christ in order to see Christ. Yeah. So our own salvation, our own sanctification, our own person is, is operative in the way that we see our role in the world. Let me see let me be you and see you. How about that? We do a song on that. Yeah. Let me be you, Lord, so I can see you in others. If we brought that to conversations about race, we'll be asking different questions. Mm-hmm. In fact, we're probably asking more questions and, and fewer statements, fewer sort of dogmatic things. So when we come back, we're going to enter into this discussion. We've kind of been setting the groundwork for it, uh, plowing the field, and yeah. now we're going to start planting some seed. We're talking today with Damon Owens, who is the executive director of Joyful Ever After. They recently put on a uh, a virtual conference, which you can still access over at joyfuleverafter.org. Join the conversation over on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle's at outside the walls. Come talk to me. I want to hear from you. 
We'll be right back right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls with TL. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, TL. We're talking today with Damon Owens, who's the executive director of Joyful Ever After, joyfuleverafter.org. It's a marriage and family ministry centered on St. John, Pope John Paul II's theology of the body. Um, we are talking today about the human family coming outside of the confines of marriage and broadening that out because of what St. Paul said, that we are members of one another. We belong to one another. We have responsibility for one another, love one another and bear one another's burdens. I mean, this is all slathered throughout the New Testament. Yeah. This is uh, our responsibility to one another as as uh, the body of Christ, as adopted children of the Father together in the same family. And so we're talking today about um, a conflict that's right in the middle of our family these days, as we see some of our brothers and sisters who are uh, who are hurting, and we want to have this conversation. We recognize the the pain that is present, and what do we do when we see pain? We bear one another's burdens. We love one another. So, Damon, thank you again for joining me on the show today. Thanks for having me, T. Alice. Is uh, I love the foundation we had in that first segment. There, I feel at peace. Mm-hmm. And really entering into a, a tender and sometimes explosive area. So thank you. So let's talk about um, some of the things that we have heard and and maybe unpack them a little bit so that we can get beyond our initial impressions, our initial responses. Um, yeah. I want to talk specifically about the question of systemic racism. Mm-hmm. We, we hear that term uh, and and I think that we have some impressions of of what it means. And so, before we get into it, um, I, I when I look at systemic racism, I think partially about the distinction that we have in the patristics from original sin and actual sin. Right? Mm-hmm. Original sin is something that we inherit, but it is not something that we ourselves uh, have responsibility for until it turns into until we through concupiscence enter into actual sin it is real and we bear it um and 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 we have some responsibility to do something about it namely parents go get your kids baptized um but but at the same time the guilt is different it is inherited guilt it is not uh, a guilt that um that we brought upon ourselves right and so as we look at this question of of systemic racism one of the things that i automatically here is kind of this this i think deformed syllogism of well if america is systemically racist and i am an american therefore you're saying that i am racist right and i want to unpack that and and look at what we actually mean and what the church actually means when it talks about structures of sin and structures of injustice and i wonder if you can begin to unpack that for us Wow, I'm happy and love to talk through it again. I I'm, I don't claim expertise in, in you know, the race uh, history dialogue studies by speaking as a as a faithful Catholic in the same way that you just just prefaced here. Um, I love that that format that structure of looking at in terms of uh, original actual sin. Uh, and in addition to that, I've I've used. Um, you know, sort of the, the, the process of sanctification, which is, um, you know, first is purging of the sin, like right? that purgative phase. 
Mm-hmm. And there's certain habits that we have to, to do good and avoid evil. And we rely on the moral law to recognize vice and virtue. But purgation is not the sum of the faith. You know, we're not here just to not do evil. That next level, when we purge sin out, the darkened intellect now is able to, to get light in that illuminative phase. So we go from the purgative phase to an illuminative phase where we can actually see things more clearly. And I don't just mean intellectually. It's, you know, it's, it's being able to, the, the light of Christ is able to shine brighter once we've purged out these things that are not of God. So that purgative phase leading to an illuminative to see with more light allows us to move into that, that third glorious phase of, of unitive, of real unity with God, community, communion. And John Paul II talked a lot about this, this, this tradition, purgative, illuminative, and, and unitive. So if we take that reality of original sin and, and um, actual sin, and we apply also this, this process of sanctification, you know, of actually doing personal acts, there's a certain courage that we can look at racism that says um, the nation itself is not uh, utterly depraved, right? Mm-hmm. So let's, let's get rid of some of the Calvinism that says, you know, that <laughs> when, you, when you look at sin and the person or the structures, uh, it's not an utter depravity. In other words, <laughs> that there's no redemption and that all we can ask for is certainly covering over of the, of the dung of, of what we have. No, we're talking about a real purification that only God himself can do. So we don't despair. We can look at the sin and call ourselves sinners because we know that's not anywhere near the end. It's pointing out the broken bone. Lord, heal this bone. Mm-hmm. We're pointing out, and then, you know, we have another uh, cancer. Lord, bring this cancer out, heal this cancer. So it's, it's a process that you know, Pope Francis talked about in, in Fertility. So uh, racism. Racism takes on different hues and different, different applications throughout the last 400 years in America. And even before the country was founded, there were assumptions and a new type of uh, racism that, again, takes different forms in each ages, but all for the same result. And the same result is either the, the uh, elevation of one race over the other or the denigration of another for the use of the, of the, of the, of the greater. And that's usually economic, you know, laborers in the vineyard, workers to build up an economy, um, you know, to find a new nation and to, you know, um, take the indigenous people out of the way so that you can – you can, uh, you know, prosper for your nation, whether you're Spain, Portugal, you know, uh, the Dutch or, or the English, you know, whatever it is. The dominant powers uh, really dominate the indigenous people. That's, it's, it's, it's baked into the Magna Carta. It's baked, in, baked into this manifest destiny. I mean, it's part of the whole yeah. ethos and, and it's, 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 it's real. But at each age, it's different. So we're not talking about the slave trade, you know, that ended in the mid-19th century. That was one type of of slavery. We're not talking about slavery. I'm sorry, one type of, of racism. We're not talking about slavery, which extended even longer, you know, mm-hmm. until it was, you know, officially outlawed. It still exists today around the world. Let's not be naive. Right. But the particular American form supported by law, you know, ended with that bloody civil war. But there still remained in the hearts of people and the systems that were there, many of them, economic, educational systems, um, the law enforcement um, well, and let's let's stop there for a second with the law enforcement sure. because we hear that term and and that's another one of those things that we immediately have a response to. Yes, um, I do too. <laughs> I think that I think that it's important to to one affirm uh, that we need to be a, a country that is subject to laws. That there is Absolutely. an importance for there to be uh, laws, but for them to be equally applied. And yeah. at the at the end of uh, slavery we saw 
the beginning of over-policing of certain communities because while you could no longer have slaves, you could subjugate your your incarcerated population. That's right, the clause in the 13th Amendment. Right, to labor. And so now yeah. we, we exchanged one uh, slave labor for another um, and, and began through over-policing populating that workforce um, and, and we can look at this and identify it and call it what it is without um, without pointing fingers at anyone today, right? We are now yeah. inheritors of that system. Yeah, so which is which just touching on how systems change and, and whether intentional or unintentional, they have an outcome and we need to look at. Unintended outcome and intended outcome. But let me just say crystal clear before we take the bullet out of anybody's gun here. I love our law enforcement. I mean, mm-hmm. the, to the particular officer, I say this with full, full-throated zeal. Any attacks on our police department is an attack on our, on our democracy. An attack, I mean violence. Mm-hmm. There is critique that we need to be very clear on that the type of policing that we have now is modern. I mean, it's, it's very, you know, the, the, the type of militarization of the police in terms of equipment, you look at even SWAT teams, yeah. you know, the idea of a SWAT team in 1975 was ridiculous at a, at, a, at a local level. Now you feel, you know, like if you don't have a SWAT team, somehow you've got a country bumpkin, you know, so right. we, there's a militarization of how we police that is absolutely worthy of criticism without attacking you know, our men and women in blue and those who uh, emergency responders and those who literally put their lives on the line to represent the law. We can step back and say, how do we police now if the outcomes themselves are still perpetuating uh, uh, unjust discrimination? And that's the case we're making here, that what you're getting at with what happened post-Civil War was that systems were put into place, in in that case, in uh, law enforcement, that still we're trying to get the same outcomes around the new change in the law. Mm-hmm. So the now the law was you cannot own another person, the person cannot own another slavery is outlawed except for criminals. So right. there were systems that were set up intentionally that incarcerated mass numbers of these ex-slaves. And again, without getting into the politics, just, just put yourself here. Slavery is illegal. You're on a plantation by the millions mm-hmm. in the South, right? And it's not getting the North off the hook. They have a different way. But the South on the plantation, and you're told that you're free. Where do you go? Right. You have no money. You have no job. You have no family. You have no no history in this country without any asset, without any home. Mm -hmm. And immediately laws were put in for vagrancy, for homelessness. You can't eat. So say you steal a loaf of bread. Is that life incarceration now? Mm -hmm. And that puts you on a work camp. And the work camp for these former slaves now is blowing up. And now you've got all these people that used to do all the work on the on the farm, on the on the plantations that are now available work for hire. Right. So the system was set up. Well, let's bring all these slaves in the, and they're working on the roadside. In the 50s, 40s, my dad would tell me that he he saw firsthand in North Carolina these same chain gangs. And yeah, that includes some violent crime, I'm sure it did. You know, all that stuff happened. Mm-hmm. But the point is that the system was set up for mass incarceration then. And, it, and under the rubric of law and order, which all of us agree with in principle, right. but in practice, it was exercised to maintain the same outcome that slavery did before. So this labor was now hired out to do the work. And if you weren't arrested and put in prison labor, then sharecropping came up. And that lasted for you know 100 years, if not longer, where now you're working pennies on the dollar on the same plantation that you were, you were a slave in. Yeah. 
it's not a living wage. Not a, so now you've got a whole underclass of people with no history, no skill, immediately freed, no housing. And now they're given an opportunity to come back to the same slave quarter for a couple of pennies on the dollar. So this has created another system. But notice how, and this is what's important, the the criminality of these slaves was already established before they were released. One of the greatest, you know, sort of pro-choice arguments against freeing the slaves was how ridiculous it would be to unleash onto the country millions of these slaves who would, would just cause havoc in our in our, our civil society, right? We 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 had a problem here. So once once it was was freed, in terms of technical slavery, praise the Lord, the criminality was still an assumption, yeah. even before the crime was committed. So those are the things where in the new system you may not have slavery, but you, now you have this this presumption of criminality. And this is what sort of infuriates me is that you know 150, 100, 150 years later, people throwing statistics about criminality of black people. Mm-hmm. It, to me, that's proof of the system. Right. Not to, I'm not saying the system made crime. We have to. There is a personal responsibility for action. This is what you're saying about actual sin. Right. No question. There's no. There's no getting around actual sin, right? But the original sin that plays into that is the presumed criminality. That pre-statistics was just as solid as post-statistic. And for the people on the other side, your brothers and sisters, were suffering under the same rubric, under the same outcome. Mm-hmm. Do you care. Well, and this, you is, care? this is also a picture of self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Yeah, as we, I think so. As we say these things, as we set up these structures, we end up with the outcome that we have prepared ourselves for. And so now let's, t- let's pull it out of that with a little bit of time we have left and look at how do we, in looking at our society today, how do we identify a structure as unjust? And then once we've said this structure is unjust, how do we go about beginning to reform it? Yeah, so this is this is probably getting on the on the outer rims of my own competence. I have strong ideas about it, but there are mm-hmm. people who know a lot more about this than I do. I think our competence, our strong, our center of mass has to be our personal interaction, our personal uh, formation, and and uh, everything we talked about in the first segment of applying uh, our Christian faith to our own hearts and to the people that we meet so that we can have real encounters with one another and to hear the stories. Just listen. Mm-hmm. You know, most black folks like myself, uh, the ones who quote unquote have succeeded. I mean, I had great success corporate and, you know, in, in, in life, that doesn't mean we don't have the story about what we've had to overcome. That's beyond just sort of the American bootstrap. Look how hard it was for my success. There's something that's common across this because of race that's worthy of the story. And there's very few people that I would talk to. And Steve Gradonis offered that interview at the National Catholic Register. Mm-hmm. I was talking to him for the first hour because he was my friend. Right. Before I realized he's writing an article about me. So, <laughs> you know, and I only answered because he asked me. Yeah. And I trusted him and we're friends. And I think there's something instructive in that. But he, but he didn't uh, tell you that there was an article. So, you know, how much can you really well, trust him? The, he sent me the draft and it had the title on it. And I was like, interview with Damon Owens. I thought you wanted some pull quotes, man. I didn't know you were talking. <laughs> but so that's what I'm going to be drawn in. But there, there are people like me, success or failure by the world's standards, who have a story. Mm-hmm. And I think our encounter with people opens our heart to hear the story, whether our facts and statistics match it, whether our worldview and experience matches it. The first step has to be the willingness to listen, that humility, that people have a story that's willing to be told. So so what I hear you saying is that we ought to recognize the dignity of the human person outside of a category 
and to yes. engage with that dignity. Yeah. That yeah. seems like yeah. something to me that's very Catholic. Yeah. You heard that before. Right. And it's not about taking on the world, right? It's not, it's not like I love the world. That's the most, you know, non-demanding statement in the world. How about loving right. the particular person that God brought in front of us? That's what makes it hard for me. Yeah. But not to avoid your question about systems. In those stories, there's an attentiveness, there's a tenderness in hearing over and over again about the real impact of, say, fatherlessness, of about violence. You know, as much as you want to lose, like the, the, the FBI statistics, you know, the universal, you know, the crime rate, the UCR report that comes out twice a year, right? Yeah, it's all oh, look, thirty percent, six and a half percent of the population, black men, and they commit forty-six percent of all the, you know, the violent crimes. Thank you for the statistic, you know. Because what you've just discovered in the UCR, 90% of those victims happen within black on black. So you're not telling any black person anything they don't know about experiencing violence as a presumption on a day-to-day -day life. And you want to look on black on white crime, it's, 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 it happens and it's awful, every single one of them. Mm -hmm. But to, to put out the statistics of violence as if it was the story on how we deal with this, usually your problem, that's not a Christian approach. It's well, recognized that there, there's a history here. There's a, there, there are things that play into this that either perpetuate this injustice or we look at them in ways to try to alleviate those injustices. And there's always the question of what leads to the violence. It, it, if, we, do we care? And that, right. that's the question people say. I tell you about this and you're telling me that I'm a criminal. Do you even care what I'm, what I'm dealing with? That's yeah. the human experience. So before we can talk about systems as if it's like public policy law, in this new era, I would call it this phase, and I get the number right, I call it the fourth wave racism. Mm -hmm. Let's make up a number. Fourth wave racism. Third wave racism required big structural changes, you know, voting rights, Brown versus Board of Education for education. It required, you know, civil rights law. It required these very blunt, necessary, universal changes in law. 13th Amendment, 14th Amendment. I mean, we needed... Yeah big structural changes. That was that previous wave. That's not what we're talking about now. I actually think that in this wave, if you will, and I'm analog from, you know, feminism, in this wave, we have to be attentive to what's needed now and not in the rearview mirror. Yeah. The, we're not calling you Bull Connor when we point out racist outcomes that still exist in certain systems. That's, that's from the last age. We're not looking for massive changes in uh, you know, uh, amendments to the law, but it may be real structural changes in the way we police, yeah. not the absence of police, but the way we do it in the way we incarcerate in minimum sentencing in, in the, the disparity of, of drug, uh, related sentencing arrests, uh, policing. And what about, you know, the system itself is not like law and order. I grew up a law and order too. Yeah. And we think they have these great trials, trial part 47, trial part 47. <laughs> but like 80, 90% of all these crimes are pleaded out. Yeah. So that means it's your lawyer, if you have one, public defender, it's the it's the court, and it's it's the other, you know, the um district attorney and district. So these things are adjudicated not in front of your jury or of your peers. They're negotiated. And it says, you know what, if you take the guilty plea on this. We'll give you 18 months. We'll give you 22 months. Yeah. We'll give you 35 months. If you take this to trial, we're going to go for life. Yeah. You're, you're looking at 25. I mean, this happens day in and day out. Are we afraid to look at that system and say, wait a minute, how is it disproportionately affecting the poor? Yeah. And who are disproportionately poor? So then to turn around and talk about statistics about criminality and the number of people in prison is is dispiriting. And it's proof from, from the victim, from the – the scientist says, you just don't care. Do you know how I got here? 
Mm-hmm. And if you do that over generations and you try to find a public policy answer to it, it's total controversy. Yeah. But if you look at that the generations through a Christian perspective, you're able to sit across from somebody who doesn't look like you, doesn't talk like you, got a different world experience, and they start talking about what it's like to live a certain place, and your heart breaks. Yeah. And I don't mean just feeling bad. I mean, now you're searching your soul, and you're praying to God, Lord, what can we do? And you get real creative when you care. You get real creative when there's a certain sense of urgency of a particular person's suffering. And not some broad accusation of America bad, of racist, since we had slavery, then America needs to get blown up and we need to start over. That's just stupid. Mm-hmm. That's just, that's just, if people are saying it or implying it or hearing it, let's just all agree. That's stupid. Yeah. Right? The reason America is so great is precisely because from the beginning, we held out principles that are true. That all civil law, man's made, man-made law has to be in alignment with God's law. And as the the declaration says, of the laws of nature and of nature's God. Yeah. Well, and and as St. Augustine said, an unjust law is no law. No law at all. Preach it. We've been talking today with Damon Owens, and we could go on and on and on, but I've only got so much time before the uh, the bumper music rolls. Damon, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Yeah, thank you, brother. I appreciate it. I appreciate you. If you missed any part of my conversation with Damon or you you want to go back and hear it again or share it with someone on social media, all of our episodes are archived over at OutsideTheWalls.com. And I encourage you to share this one, even if you disagreed with part of it, because this is how we start the important conversations. I do have an extra segment in which Damon expresses some of his personal experience And that's available to all those who support the show through Patreon. We've got a great group of supporters that help us keep the show on the air and allow us to continue having these important conversations. Um, If you want to join their numbers and get access to a whole host of extra segments, go to OutsideTheWalls.com, click the Patreon link in the top right-hand corner of the page. That's the sound of our Verbum Library launching up, which means it's time to turn our attention to our readings from Scripture and Church History. Our reading from Scripture today, I could not have planned if I tried. This is the reading from today's Mass, and it comes from Galatians. Brothers and sisters, Scripture can find all things under the power of sin, that through faith in Jesus Christ, the promise might be given to those who believe. Before faith came, we were held in custody under law, confined for the faith that was to be revealed. Consequently, the law was our disciplinarian for Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a disciplinarian. For through faith you are all children of God in Christ. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek neither slave nor free person. There is not male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. That reading comes from Paul's letter to the Galatians, and this is so important. We have to quit judging people based on externals, because we have all been made one in Christ. And Paul hammers this over and over, that we're members of one body, we are members of one another. St. John talks about our need to love one another and to bear one another's burdens. 
So even if we don't feel like we have been touched by these kinds of structures that we've been talking about, we have to realize that there are members of our body who have been. And as the, as, as the fact that we are one body, we have to bear those burdens together, even if that means putting aside something that we have long held to believe. Uh, this is part of leaving behind the old life to follow Christ into the new. Our reading today from church history comes from Gaudium et Spes. The way in which the earthly and the heavenly city interpenetrate each other can be recognized only by faith. Indeed, it remains a mystery of human history, that is, of a history always troubled by sin until the glory of the sons of God is fully revealed. As she pursues her appointed goal of bringing salvation to men, the church not only communicates the divine life to mankind, but also in some measure reflects the light of that life over the whole world. She does this, especially through her work of restoring and enhancing the dignity of the human person, of strengthening the fabric of human society, and of enriching the daily activity of men with a deeper meaning and importance. The church believes that in this way, she can make a great contribution through individual members and the community as a whole toward bringing a greater humanity to the family of man and to its history. While the church helps the world and herself receives much from the world, she has one object in view, the coming of God's kingdom and the salvation of the whole human race. Every good that the people of God in the course of its earthly pilgrimage can confer on the family of men derives from the fact that the church is the universal sacrament of salvation, revealing and at the same time bringing into operation the mystery of God's love for man. The Word of God, through whom all things were made, was himself made flesh so that as perfect man he might save all men and bring all things into unity. The Lord is the final end of human history, the point toward which the aspirations of history and civilization are moving, the focus of the human race, the joy of all hearts, and the fulfillment of their desires. He it is whom the Father raised from the dead, lifted up on high and set at his right hand, appointing him judge of the living and the dead. In his spirit, we have been brought to life and gathered into unity, and so make our pilgrim way toward the goal of human history, a goal in complete harmony with the loving plan of God to make all things one in Christ, the things in heaven and the things on earth. The Lord himself says, See, I am coming soon. I bring my recompense with me to give everyone what his deeds deserve. I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. That reading comes from Gaudium at Spes, and it should serve for us as a reminder that this is temporary. We are sojourners, and our goal as followers of Christ, both individually and corporately, should be to work to see the kingdom of God brought here on earth. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Keeping in mind that last phrase that we will be judged according to our deeds. May we be found faithful at the end. 
That's all the time we have for today. Today's show is brought to you by Eileen Herman and all of those who support the show through Patreon. Go to OutsideTheWalls.com. Click that Patreon link in the top right-hand corner of the page and join their numbers. Until next week, let nothing disturb you. Let nothing affright you. All things are passing, but God is unchanging. Patience obtains all things. Who has God lacks nothing. God alone suffices. Thank you.